Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 11. I mentioned in the very first episode in this series that the book of Leviticus basically has two sections in it, organized around a central hinge. Chapters 1 to 15 deal with the various sacrifices and rituals associated with tabernacle worship, and chapters 17 to 27 emphasize ethics, morality, and holiness. And of course, that leaves chapter 16 as the hinge. We'll get to that shortly. Within this first section, however, we can observe some lesser transitions and movements. So, for example, Hebrew scholar Baruch Levine says here, Taken as a whole, chapters 1 to 10 focus on officiation as a basic function of the priesthood. Chapters 11 to 16, on the other hand, address the matter of purity, which is a prerequisite of the pursuit of holiness, closed quote. So the first section has two significant subsections, and in chapter 11, we are passing from the one to the other. We've been talking about the rules and rituals governing the priesthood. And in chapter 10, we saw what could happen if those rules are disregarded. Now, here in chapter 11, we're zooming out and we're thinking in big picture categories about clean and unclean in general. Remember, that's a big part of the job of the priesthood. They're to distinguish between these sorts of things, teaching on this, taking the lead on this in terms of communication and enforcement was a central aspect of the priestly task. Everything we're going to encounter in the next couple of chapters is really an expansion of what the Lord said to Aaron back in Leviticus 10, verses 10 to 11. He said, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So that's what this is all about. These laws served primarily a pedagogical function. God was teaching through them. John Calvin held that view. He said, The ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people until the fullness of the time should come when he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world and exhibit the reality of those things which were then adumbrated by figures. Close quote. You'll notice that Calvin quotes from Galatians there. Both Luther and Calvin were impacted by the Apostle Paul's perspective on the law in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, 1-7, the Apostle Paul said, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God, close quote. So the Apostle Paul said that the Old Testament law functioned as a tutor or a guardian over the people of God before the coming of Christ. He says that we were children, as it were, with respect to the things of faith and subject to the elementary principles. The Greek word there literally means alphabet or the ABCs. So the older translations used to render that as rudiments. The law, the Old Testament law, was trying to teach us the rudiments, the basics, the ABCs of faith. But now, Paul says, now that Christ has come, and we have come to Christ, and are filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, we are no longer under the law. It has no authority over us because we are sons. We are mature now. We've come into our inheritance. So, of course, we have a fondness and a deep respect for our old tutor, but we are no longer subject to its authority. Now, that is the classic Christian understanding of the Mosaic law in general. Now, as for these dietary laws in particular, they seem to be trying to teach us that what we do on the horizontal plane of life affects our experience of God on the vertical plane of life. The JPS Torah commentary sees that as the original intended lesson, that the avoidance of the impure is a prerequisite for the attainment of holiness, closed quote. That is the rudimentary concept, and we see that concept affirmed and applied all over the New Testament. The Apostle James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, James 4, 8. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 2, 21. So the principle endures, even as the original laws that communicated the principle have passed away. And they have passed away. Let's be clear about that. The Gospel of Mark makes that explicit. In Mark 7, 18 to 23, Jesus is teaching about the meaning behind these laws. He says, do you, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled in brackets. Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Close quote. So the dietary laws are no longer in effect. But we continue to learn from them about the importance of being separate from influences and connections that defile. As a modern-day reader, living on the other side of the cross in the day of Pentecost, you can think of this dietary code as a sort of illustration in advance. It is establishing and illustrating some rudimentary principles that even as mature sons and daughters, we would do very well to be aware of. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, 
These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. All right, a couple of things to say here about the lists of clean and unclean animals. First of all, the classifications don't line up exactly with our modern classifications. So, for example, a bat will later be considered as a type of bird. Again, that doesn't need to disturb us. This is a visual illustration of a spiritual principle, not a lesson in scientific taxonomy. Secondly, we should just acknowledge that translation here is notoriously difficult. Some of these Hebrew words we just cannot connect definitively to a known animal. So there is some guesswork here. And if you consult three different English translations, you will see that immediately. Again, that's not a problem because the goal here is not to turn this passage into a shopping list. This is not our diet. All of this ritual law has passed. Remember Mark 7, 19. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So every time you feel an urge to turn this passage into a grocery list, I want you to recite that verse. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So this is not about that. So if we can't identify all of the animals that go with each Hebrew word on this list, that's not a problem. In fact, I'll be honest with you, it might be a kindness. Anybody who tells you that they're keeping the Old Testament diet precisely is lying to you. Uh, it's not possible. It's, it, it would be extraordinarily difficult to identify all of these animals precisely. There'd be some guesswork there. So I think that's a kindness. I'm glad we can't do that because we're not supposed to be doing that. A little confusion here actually might be helpful. Now, as to why then these particular animals are classified as unclean, most of us want to make this about health and hygiene. And that may be a secondary factor, but it is definitely not primary and has generally not been considered as such by Christians or Jews throughout history. Jewish scholar Baruch Levine, for example, says here, there is no evidence, however, of a broad nutritional or health-related basis for the specific dietary classifications of the Torah. It is more reasonable to assume a socio-religious basis, closed quote. All right, so just hear that. This is not a weight loss strategy. This is not about boosting your immunity. This is religious communication. Presbyterian scholar L. Michael Morales says something similar, and I think he's pointing us in the right direction here. He says, many of the unclean animals are associated with death in some fashion, whether in being uh, carnivorous predators or scavengers, living in caves, tombs, or like pigs, by being associated with underworld deities in pagan worship. Along these lines, creatures that demonstrate some abnormality within their class, like fish without scales, are considered further from the wholeness of an ordered cosmos 
in terms of life, closed quote. So that's what this is about. And that's why they are given visual clues. Look for animals that are cloven-footed and that chew the cud, because those are generally not predators. Those are generally plant-eating animals. But beware of those who deviate from that pattern. So unclean animals are those associated with death, violence, and disorder. Those are the very things that are far away from God and that by nature and definition can never be brought into his presence and that therefore God's people must be careful to avoid. That's the teaching. These are the rudiments we're being instructed in. The same principle will now be applied to creatures that live in water. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So again, the things in the bottom, near death, the things that prey on other things, these are the sea creatures to avoid. But the creatures that conform to order and that are not associated with death, these you may eat freely. The pattern is now applied to the creatures that live in the air, the birds. Verse 13, And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hopo, and the bat. Here in particular, translation is a huge challenge, but the general principle holds. The forbidden birds are generally predators, scavengers, or strange deviations from the general pattern. They are associated with death or disorder. Verse 20, we begin to talk about insects. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Now, this one seems most foreign to the modern Western mind. We don't eat a lot of insects. There are plenty of places in the world where certain insects continue to constitute part of the local diet, but regardless, we are curious to know why some insects are to be understood as clean and others as unclean. Some commentators suggest that it has to do with movement. Everything that swarms is to be avoided. Mary Douglas, for example, says here, The case of locusts is interesting and consistent. The test of whether it is a clean and therefore edible kind is how it moves on the earth. If it crawls, it is unclean. 
If it hops, it is clean, closed quote. So again, this is not about health or hygiene. It is about religious communication. Things that slither and swarm along the ground are associated with death and chaos. Things that hop and move about in ways appropriate to their sphere are not. Verse 24. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean, and all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. Here we see that it is not just by eating that a person may be contaminated, but also by touching. The uncleanness caused by touching is temporary, but it has the effect of making a person unable to enter the presence of the Lord. Here we are learning that we are affected by our environment. Unholiness is contagious. Again, this ritual law is no longer in effect, but the principle is restated in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Clean things can become unholy, but they can also become unclean through unwise contact. So be careful what you touch and what you draw near. Verse 29, and these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten, on which water comes, shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Sometimes you touch unclean things and sometimes unclean things touch you. Impurity can come for you even when you aren't looking for it. It can touch you and it can seep into you. But thanks be to God, it is possible to cleanse and purify 
that which has been contaminated. That's what we're learning here. Verse 39, and if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Here we see that even a clean animal, if it has been touched by and associated with death, becomes unclean. Clean things, even holy things, can be contaminated and will need to be treated as such with all due caution, lest their contamination spread. Verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Here we are reminded that these laws are given to a saved people. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy as I am holy. That's a helpful reminder. The law doesn't save us. God saves us. And then God teaches us, transforms us, restrains us, purifies us. God does all that, sometimes by the law, but the law doesn't save. If you apply law to people who aren't saved, you run into trouble. If you look to the law to do what only God can do, you run into trouble. Keeping these things straight has been a challenge for the covenant community since the very beginning. Verse 46, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. That's a very helpful summary and it reminds us of all the ground we've covered and we've covered quite a lot of ground in this chapter and most of it has seemed pretty alien to our modern and particularly Western ears. But the big picture message is actually very transparent. It's right at the surface. Remember, the entire ritual system was intended as a tutelage. It's a teaching tool for the covenant community in its infancy. And the lesson lies pretty close to the surface. This entire drama is attempting to deal with the question of what can and cannot enter the presence of God. Unclean things cannot. Clean things can be made holy through consecration. And holy things can enter the presence of the Lord, though only through the means and mediation that God supplies. That is the big picture lesson. The Lord has made a way for dirty things to become clean things and for clean things to become holy things and for holy things to become near things, thanks be to God. But the other thing to remember here is that the actual forms that communicated that content are no longer binding on New Covenant Christians. 
This is entry-level stuff, elementary-level stuff. And Paul reminds Christians that they are not to submit to it. He says in Colossians 2, 20 to 21, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You're in university now, Paul says, so you shouldn't be writing with crayon. That's for kindergarten. Now we are dealing in substance rather than shadow. So we want to learn from these rituals, but we don't want to perpetuate these rituals. Gordon J. Wenham puts it this way. He says, if we can see why such regulations were first imposed on Israel, we may discover both why they were abrogated under the new covenant and what they can still teach us today. Close quote. That's exactly right. The lesson here has enduring and eternal relevance. The Lord has made a way for unclean things to become clean and for clean things to become holy and for holy things to be brought near. That's the lesson. That's, that's the beauty. That's the principle. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at IntoTheWord.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's IntoTheWord.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.